as a lot of you guys are aware, I released a video earlier today basically talking about YouTube and how unhappy I am with them and, and all that other stuff. I got a lot of interesting feedback from people. The majority, the vast majority of people were very supportive, happy with the work that I've been doing and want to make sure that I can continue to do it. Got a lot of new patrons pushing me further toward being ad-free on YouTube, not being under their thumb pretty much. But there were there was a small segment of the population who was seemed to think that I don't have a real job as a YouTuber. Seemed to think I don't do anything, that it's just 100% passive income and I just sit on my ass all day and collect money and that's it. That is not the case in any way. So I wanted to just kind of go through my typical week and talk about what it's like. In fact, immediately after that video, I went to my website to write a blog article about it, just because I wanted to get it down on record, and I wanted to really figure out how much time I spend every week doing this stuff. Like, do I work a 40-hour week, or is it more? Is it less? Now, whatever it turned out to be, I love this job. This is the best job I've ever had, whether I work 20 hours a week or 100 hours a week. I love doing this work. It's just very frustrating when I don't know if I'm going to mess up or I don't know how I'm messing up when I do. And if I mess up, then they dock my pay. That's pretty much what this is. If I mess up in some unknown way that they're not going to explain afterwards, they dock my pay by like 25%, 30 40%. It's a lot. It's a very unfair system. And I understand that that's part of being a contractor. I accept that as part of the territory. I just don't like it. And I don't see anything wrong with lobbying for change. That's basically what I've been doing. That's what I did earlier on my video. I'm basically just lobbying for change. This is the best job I've ever had because I have a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I can do it in my own time. So I wrote this whole article basically figuring out exactly how much time I put into YouTube every week. And I went day by day. On Sundays, I determined I'm basically working from 3 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. So 3 o'clock is when I make my premieres public. And I sit in there and I chat with people until 4 o'clock when the premiere starts. Then from 4 to, what, 4.15 or so, 4.20 is when the premiere is going and then I got about 10 minutes afterward to kind of look at the analytics and figure things out. Then I spend about an hour, sometimes an hour and a half afterward, talking in the comments, responding to people on Twitter, responding to emails, that kind of thing. I spend at least an hour a day responding to people, like in comments and things like that. Comments, Twitter, emails, and Facebook, and things like that. So I do have some breaks in between 3 p.m. and 10.30 p.m., but for the most part, that, that's a solid block of work, usually. If, I, if I'm not working after the premiere, then I'm working before the premiere. Like today, I went and got dinner and then hung out with my girlfriend for a little bit after the premiere, but that's because I got a lot of the work done that, that I would have done after the premiere before it happened. So 3 to 10.30 basically on Sundays is how long I work. It's kind of supposed to be my day off, but 
or one of my two days off, but it never is. Then Mondays, I end up editing the podcast and writing metadata, creating thumbnails, uploading, and a whole bunch of other stuff for the podcast that takes about seven hours. Takes about four hours of editing or so, and then another three hours of scheduling the releases, writing the descriptions, making the thumbnails, and all that other stuff. It, it takes a surprisingly long time. Uploading the videos takes a long time just after the editing itself is done to just get the videos onto YouTube and ready to release. So about seven hours on Monday. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, I kind of split it up. So usually on Tuesdays, I will write two scripts, one for my main YouTube channel and one for my retro channel. And that takes roughly three and a half hours per script, give or take. Sometimes it takes about five hours per script. It, it, it kind of varies. Then on Wednesday, I do all of the editing. The, I record, I edit, I write the metadata and create the thumbnails and everything for those two scripts. So I, I basically produce two videos in two days. And each video takes between seven and 10 hours, beginning to end. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I have full days worth of work. Uh, Thursday is supposed to be my day off, but inevitably I usually end up working, you know, working on t-shirt designs, talking to people on Twitter and in the comments, trying to check on my analytics and improve my analytics in some way, that kind of thing. So I usually work three or four hours on Thursdays. Fridays, I end up, uh, I usually start on a script for the Sunday video. So I'll write the script and then I'll communicate with people again, comments and Twitter and things like that. It takes about seven or eight hours on Fridays typically. Then Saturdays, I do another five or six hours worth of editing. Like I said, these numbers go up and down from day to day. It varies, but I really do not have a day off, really. I mean, there there aren't any days that I don't work. I work every single day of my life. Typically, I, that's at least 65 hours of work per week. Not to mention the fact that I host websites, so I have to work on the servers, make sure that they're being protected, they're not under danger of being hacked, communicate with my clients, I run a 3D printing store, so I have to run maintenance on my printer and print various things, ship things through the post office, probably work a total of 70 to 80 hours a week, every single week. So somebody said they run a YouTube channel and they work full time and they have a kid. Why can't I do it? There's your answer. Because I work a, a lot harder than you do on my channel. On my three channels, you know, a long, long time ago, like when I started out YouTube, I was kind of unhappy about the fact that there were a lot of bigger YouTubers who were not talking to me, who weren't responding to my messages or emails or anything. I was like, do they, are they too good for me? What's the deal here? Why aren't they talking? Why don't they respond? I mean, it's just a simple, hey, thanks for the message. That's all they'd have to say, you know? And I decided I was not going to be like that when or if I got big. As time went on, I responded to every single comment on YouTube, every single comment, every tweet, every Facebook message, everything, up to 50,000 subscribers. That's when it went downhill. That's when it was so much that I literally could not do it anymore. 
at this point, if I wanted to respond to every single comment, every tweet, every Facebook message that I get, I would probably be spending eight to 10 hours a day, every day doing it. It's a lot. I honestly didn't think it was going to be as much as it is. So I had to limit myself to like an hour a day or maybe two hours a day of communication. There was one point in time where I had some really, really good friends, and I still consider them really, really good friends. I don't talk to them as much as I used to, but they've been heavily involved in my Discord. They've been heavily involved in helping me run it, one of whom was the owner for like a really long time of the Discord. Really good friend of mine. Sent him a Christmas present and everything. Like, oh, it was an expensive present, too. It wasn't this cheap thing. I mean, he's, he's my friend. I met up with him when I went to a conference and got in and out burger with him and everything. Dude is legit as fuck. But let me tell you this, something that I realized. There's a point where there are too many people that are trying to talk to you at once. Like a human can only maintain a relationship of substance with a maximum of 10 to 15 people at a time in their lives. Somebody is going to get like pushed out or neglected in some way past that, or everybody's going to suffer from it. I've discovered. So I've got like my brothers, my sister, my girlfriend, my friend Brian, Kylie, Kylie's mom and grandmother and great-grandmother. That's that's eight people. I only have room for like six more and that's honestly pushing it. It came to the point where I was trying to be friends with everybody at the same time and I was jumping from conversation like so I would send a message to somebody and they would respond to me as I was responding to another person. So I have like five message boxes pulled up for from five friends. I'd send message I'd send a message to person number one and then I'd send a message to person number two and then number three. And by the time I got to person three, person one had already responded. So I'd go through and respond really quickly to person number four and five and then jump back to one. And number three had already responded. It was a juggling act that I I would do this for like hours, just jump between five conversations with five different people for like three or four hours at a time and do literally nothing else because trying to carry a conversation with like five people is really, really difficult. I sent some of these people Christmas presents. They were and are, I still consider them my really close, good friends. I just can't carry a conversation for long and I hate it. It's really, really hard to be bombarded with a lot of messages all the time. I wish that I could respond to more of them because I I love hearing people's stories. I love talking to people and just being friends with them. But it's so hard to maintain a conversation or even a friendship with people when you have so many others pounding on the door trying to get in, you know? Anyway, as I was saying... 50,000 subscribers is about the threshold. That's about where I broke down and I couldn't maintain communication with everybody anymore. 50,000 subscribers. It got really, really intense at that point, and I was spending hours and hours and hours, all of my free time, responding to people. So I pretty much just have to pick and choose who I devote my time to talking to, and I just can't stand it. I just wish that I could just have a normal friendship with people, you know? But those people do still hold a place in my heart, and I do still talk to them. 
I just don't talk to him as much as I used to is all. So anyway, that's my typical week. I, ru- I roughly work about 65 hours a week, at least 65 to 80 hours a week. And YouTube will, will bring in not very much money, honestly. YouTube doesn't bring in very much money. I can't really talk about what it brings in because they will kick me off of YouTube if I do, but it's in my employee contract, basically, that I won't talk about what I make, but it's not much. It's a a lot less than you'd think for somebody with, um, you know, 135,000 subscribers, but either way, I'm making it. It just, you know, YouTube just really pisses me off. I just wish they'd give me some kind of handbook or something so that I knew what I was supposed to do and what I wasn't supposed to do. So I knew what rules to follow, that kind of thing. It would be really nice if I had something like that. But since I don't, I'll just ride the line really, really closely. Just be as careful as I can not to upset them. I went to this website and I found this article called What's Next? Behind a Redditor's Fair Use Fight with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's basically about the whole Dark Spilver case. So here's what it says. Welcome back for another week of What's Next, where we, where we report on the intersection of law and technology. This week, copyright laws in the eye of the beholder as U.S. District Judge James Donato weighs in on a Jehovah's Witness organization's efforts to uncover the identity of a Reddit user. This article is by Elena Lancaster. I wish that I could credit the website. I don't see what the website is, but anyways, that's the author either way. Elena Lancaster. It says... A federal judge cast more doubt Thursday over a case that Jehovah's Witnesses group calls a copyright dispute and that a digital rights group fears is a pretext for silencing detractors. In last week's hearing, U.S. District Judge James Donato of the Northern District of California raised an eyebrow over the continued legal avenues for Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania, the Jehovah's Witnesses administrative organization that subpoenaed Reddit in January for the identifying information of a foreign user who reportedly infringed two of Watchtower's copyrights. The user allegedly infringed the copyrights when he posted a one-page magazine advertisement encouraging readers to make online donations to the church and a Watchtower chart that describes its personal data-gathering policies. Both the works have since been removed from the site. The poster is outside the territory of the U.S. The church's main concerns have been addressed by the takedown, Donato said. Isn't that enough to call it a day? Let's backtrack a bit. Earlier this year, Reddit declined to share the identity of the anonymous user. That person, identified only as Dark Spilver, uses the forum to question the teachings of the church without fear of excommunication or disfellowshipping from the Jehovah's Witnesses community he was raised in. The subpoena seeks Dark Spilver's subscriber information, name, telephone number, address, email, and IP address, citing infringement under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA Act. In June, U.S. Magistrate Judge Sally Kim of the Northern District of California ruled that Reddit must reveal the identity of Dark Spilver, but only to attorneys involved in the case. The Internet Freedom Advocacy Group Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, intervened on behalf of Dark Spilver to try and quash the subpoena, which the EFF argues is a thinly veiled attempt at uncovering the identity of a leaker. Here's the issue with it, okay? So this is giving a little bit of background on the case. The judge, Sally Kim, I think, basically wanted Reddit to turn over the name of Dark Spilver, all the information that they were seeking, to the to Watchtower Society's lawyers, but not to the Watchtower Society. The problem is the lawyers 
are the Watchtower Society. They live on their cult compound. They work with them every single day. They are the Watchtower Society. If you give the name to the lawyers, you're giving it to the Watchtower Society. There is no separation there. So it says, before getting into the merits of the case during Thursday's hearing, Donato had to determine whether Kim's order stood. EFF argued that Dark Spilver never officially consented to a dispositive motion in front of Kim which is required for a magistrate judge to have the authority to issue an order. That argument came despite Dark Spilver's attorney submitting briefings and appearances in the case. Known among my colleagues for being the most prepared person in the room, Donato rattled off several cases, including Roll v. Wilthrow, to suss out implied consent. In Donato's opinion, if you come to the party and drink the punch, you can't say you weren't a guest. I'm not really sure what that means. However, precedent says otherwise in Allen v. Meyer. The circuit has expressly declared that simply submitting briefs and attorney arguments just is not enough, he said. I'm not sure if that's the answer, but that's the answer I'm left with. Donato subsequently suggested taking Kim's ruling as a recommendation instead of an order. With that out of the way, the judge returned to the copyright argument. Watchtower's in-house counsel, Paul D. Polidoro, said that the church became a digital media organization virtually overnight. Polidoro claimed the infringing posts drew traffic away from the organization's website, and Watchtower had a right to protect its site, an official conduit for Jehovah's Witnesses' teachings. B.S. Oh my god, that is such ridiculous B.S. That's what the notification and takedown process is for, Donato said. Alex Moss, an EFF staff attorney representing Dark Spilver, said the DMCA could be invoked to unmask other anonymous internet posters who won't have the EFF or anyone else defending them if Donato rules in Watchtower's favor. However, Moss said Donato's questions had her leaving in a good mood. We weren't surprised that Judge Donato came to the hearing extremely well prepared, but we were pleasantly surprised by the indications he gave, particularly with respect to procedural questions about the appealability of the magistrate judge's order and the practical uh, necessity of Watchtower getting access to client's name now that the images at issue have since been removed from Reddit, she said. We hope that Judge Donato's decision will take into account the nature of our client's fair use and the harm that compelling Reddit to disclose the user's identity under these circumstances would do for the anonymous fair use commentary. Interesting. This is just such a bullshit argument. There's no way of knowing how many were drawn away from the Jehovah's Witness website, if any, but still, it's just a ridiculous argument. So that's the state of the subpoena at this moment on Dark Spilver. That's where it is. That's that's what it looks like at this moment. So we're just kind of waiting for new information from, from here on. Just hoping for the best. So there was a new report that just came out from the friendly atheist, Hemant Mehta. It's his blog. I figured I'd give it a read. The Jehovah's Witnesses want the Supreme Court to help them cover up sex abuse. Big surprise. It says, uh, oh yeah, one more thing. I did mention ads earlier. I'm going to mention them again. Hemant Mehta's, this is Hemant Mehta's website. I would suggest that you guys view it with the ads and support Hemant because he's awesome. So it says, the organization that oversees the Jehovah's Witnesses is currently embroiled in a major legal battle that involves child molestation, religious secrecy, and possibly the Supreme Court. The entire story is bananas, and both sides have now made their arguments as to why their case should or should not be taken up in the court's next term. While we await the court's decision, it's worth summarizing what all this is about. 
So let's take a look at the summary real quick. The case centers around an incident that took place on July 15th, 2006. JW, a nine-year-old girl with Jehovah's Witness parents, was invited to her first slumber party at the home of Gilbert Simmental. He had a daughter her age, so that wasn't too weird. Two other girls, or they were sisters, I guess, were also at the party. The, these families all knew and trusted the Cemental because while he was no longer a local witness leader, he had spent more than a decade as an elder in the faith. He was a religious leader who stepped down, he said, to spend more time with his son. They believed him. They all respected him. It's why they allowed their girls into his home. During that party, everyone got into a pool in the backyard, including Cemental, and he proceeded to molest JW and the sisters. He did it again later that night. The sisters eventually told their parents, who reported Cemental to local witness elders, which is what they're taught to do in these situations. Yeah, don't re don't report it to the police. Report it to the elders. This is outrageous. Cemental confessed to some of the allegations, and the elders basically gave him a faith-based slap on the wrist, a reprimand that had no meaning outside church circles. Yeah, probably reproval. He wasn't allowed to, like, carry the microphones or something. Something like that. You know, wasn't allowed to answer at the meetings or some other nonsense. Things changed only when the sister's school principal learned about what happened and, as required by law, reported the abuse to local law enforcement. Police soon contacted JW's family asking for their story, but after consulting with the witnesses, her father chose not to speak with the cops. It was a year later when JW, then 10 years old, told her parents what Cemental did to her in the pool. It infuriated them, and they told the witness elders that they wanted a restraining order against him. The elders told him not to do that since it would require informing the police about what Cemental did, and they preferred to keep his actions private. Here's the bigger problem. There's reason to believe the witnesses were aware that Cemental was a child molester, and they kept it from the families. Cemental was allowed to be a religious leader, earning respect from the community and trust, even though higher-ups in the religion knew that he shouldn't be around children. It raises an important question. How much blame do the witnesses deserve for what happened at the pool party? JW's family eventually filed a criminal lawsuit against Cemental and a separate civil suit against the Watchtower Society, the witnesses governing bot, uh, I'm sorry, the Jehovah's Witnesses governing organization. They basically said the witnesses should have informed the congregation members about Cemental and stopped him from being around children. They never should have allowed him to be a religious leader. Yeah, I agree. The Watchtower Society's argument, they didn't know that Cemental was a child molester and the pool party occurred after he was no longer a religious leader and the slumber party wasn't a church sponsored event, so leave them out of this. To be clear, I'm simplifying the details of this case and the legal journey quite a bit. When this case went to trial in California, JW's family demanded that the Watchtower Society produce documents relating to what they knew about, the ch about child molesters within the faith. The witnesses had already admitted to keeping lists of problematic leaders along with their specific crimes. Similar to the Catholic Church, if Cemental was on that list from 1997, nearly a decade before the pool incident, it would essentially be a smoking gun, showing the witnesses knew he was a threat to kids, but did nothing about it. But the witnesses refused to hand over that material. They treated it like Catholic street confession. It's private information, they argued, and to reveal what was said internally would violate their religious beliefs. JW's family didn't buy that argument. The information they wanted wasn't bound by clergy penitent confessional privilege. It's not like Sentinel told the elders what he had done in order to confess his sins. He was caught. The witnesses were merely shielding him from legal punishment. In the criminal trial, witnesses' elders were forced to admit their practices and that the private discussions they had about abusive clergy members were not considered confidential under the law. Mark O'Donnell, writing at JW Survey, explains what happened next. JW Survey is um, run by 
Lloyd Evans. He's a buddy of mine. He's he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, he's written lots of books, a couple of books on Jehovah's Witnesses. They're really, really solid reads, too. Gilbert Cemental was found guilty of three counts of lewd and lascivious acts upon a child under the age of 14. In 2008, he was sentenced to 45 years to life for his crimes. At his sentencing hearing, a sizable group of Jehovah's Witnesses demonstrated solidarity with Cemental, appealing for a more lenient sentence. J.W. and her parents were treated as if they broke the congregation code of silence. That is disturbing. Cemental's appeal got him nowhere. He's in prison today. Good, as he should be. But there were still so many questions about what responsibility the witnesses had in this whole matter. <sighs> See, the, here's the issue with it, okay? This is the issue with Jehovah's Witnesses and, and, and how this whole thing operates. They are, and, and it's the same with the Catholic Church. They're doing a lot of really crooked, messed up stuff, right? They're protecting abusers and things like that. But who is they? There, You can't really bring criminal charges against any one person. I mean, you you really can't in, in these types of situations. It's just gross negligence on the part of the corporation. So you're, you're left having to sue the company for money. And honestly, I, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of these victims would really rather see people go to prison. I don't know. It's just such a disgusting, crooked situation. It makes me really, really disappointed in, in, in a lot of stuff and how this operates in our justice system and, and the value that America puts on freedom of religion. I am all for freedom of religion. 100%. You should be allowed to believe what you want to do. But the moment you violate somebody else's rights is the moment you lose your rights by being put in prison for it. It's wrong. It just disgusts me. Omega Riley, I have him on tonight to read some questions to me. Do you happen to have any for me? Sure do. I got one from Gabe. says, do you think it's possible to move someone away from a far-right mindset? Do I think it's possible to move somebody away from a far-right mindset? That's an interesting question. There's extremism. All right, I'm going to try to be uh, kind of middle of the road on this and say there's extremism on both sides, left wing and right wing. And that's that's just factual. There is, right? There are extremists on each side. How do you deprogram an extremist? It's really, really complicated. It's not like a sit down with them for an hour and they're no longer extremists kind of thing. It's like an ongoing, long, drawn-out process of talking them through it and taking them through logical steps. It is possible, but honestly, I, I, I've given up on a lot of people, unfortunately. However, you have to go into every situation assuming that you're going to be able to uh, deprogram them. It's basically like, I don't think that we should be punishing people in our criminal justice system. I think we should be working on rehabilitating them and protecting society from them, rehabilitating them, reintroducing them into society. Of course, there are some people that are just lost causes. Like, there are some people who are just monsters and will never be rehabilitated. But we have to go into those situations as though they can be rehabilitated. You know, it's the same with dealing with extremists. There are some people out there who will never come to their senses. My mother will probably never come to her senses. But we have to enter these situations as though everybody might. Got one from the doctor. He says to ask you if you'd rather have every single Pokemon game ever or every single Zelda game ever. That's... That's actually, that's a tough question. I have a lot of each. 
I have every Pokemon game from Game Boy to Game Boy Advance, including the spin-off titles. And I have almost every Zelda game from NES to N64. And I have some GameCube ones, too. I don't have the CDI ones. I don't know. Price-wise, I think that the Zelda games are probably worth more total, just like the, the Zelda collection is probably worth more. So I'd say I'd go with the Zelda collection. Not not because of the money, but just because it's rarer and there are a lot more of them and things like that. So, yeah, I'd go with that one. Got one from Deanna McVie. Is it hard to have awesome content on all channels and not just be annoying and repetitive? Yes, actually, it is. <laughs> it is hard. Honestly, I... <sighs> The thing is with like YouTube and having multiple channels, I keep trying to find direction. Like I found direction with my main channel, my my Telltale YouTube channel. The direction was geared toward cults and psychology and brainwashing and things like that. Like that's kind of what I talk about on that channel pretty much exclusively. Sometimes I venture into, you know, side subjects, but that's kind of, that's the focus. That's the direction for that channel. Now the the direction for my podcast channel is cult related news and anything that I wouldn't want or that I feel I couldn't say on my main channel. I'm not afraid of talking about politics on my my podcast for the most part. I mean, I think that my my podcast audience is a lot smaller than my main channel's audience, and I'm okay with just saying speaking my mind. I'm not worried about dividing people off or if they're going to lose interest in me or whatever. I'm just this is my platform to say what I want to say and that's it. It's just what I like talking about. And the retro channel is completely different from any other YouTube channel that I do. So I don't really worry too much about being repetitive on that one because there's no overlap between any of them. So the main channel is very directed and specific and planned out. The podcast is very off the cuff. I script the main one. I don't script the podcast. Got one from Gray Young Wolf. I'm thinking about being an all-rounded YouTuber, but I'm busy doing other things. Is it advisable to be a YouTuber at all? I just went on like a 10-minute rant about how YouTube sucks. <laughs> um, all right, here's the thing. YouTube has... YouTube exists because of independent creators like me, like Holy Kool-Aid, Genetically Modified Skeptic, all those people. That's why it exists, because of people like us, Hugo and Jake and, and everybody. It's interesting and it draws people in because of us, right? And not just us, but all kinds of people, Philip DeFranco and a bunch of others. It exists because of us. And YouTube took one step down the wrong road, in my opinion, when they made it so that you can't earn money. You you have to apply for their partner program, and you can't do it until you reach 1,000 subscribers and 240,000 watch minutes and things like that. That was one step down the wrong road. Honestly, up to that point in, in a YouTube career, 240,000 watch minutes, you probably aren't going to earn more than $20 anyways. It's such a small amount of money involved. But it discourages people from getting into it in the first place if they can't see that number go up just a little bit every single day. So that was one mistake, a pointless mistake. Why do that? You're just discouraging people from joining and you're not hurting anybody but yourself. That was their first big mistake, in my opinion. YouTube's next big mistake was trying to alter the algorithm in any way to control what people say. 
I understand that there are some really, really extreme people. Louis Farrakhan, Alex Jones, people like that are really, really extreme. And if you all get together with like Apple and Facebook and everybody else and talk it through with them and agree, yeah, these people are really, really extreme and harmful and we don't want them on our platforms, I can understand why you'd want to pull them off. But you're, you're, they're trying to censor people that are just talking about normal stuff. Like, I'm not talking about any kind of crazy, like, conspiracy theories or anything here. But every time I talk about any kind of historical event or psychological techniques of any kind, I get censored. That's another big issue with YouTube. So the question is, should you even bother? Yeah, YouTube is full of fuck-ups right now. The leadership is full of fuck-ups. But I do still like the platform, and I like the idea behind it even though the leadership is fuck-ups. So yeah, you should. You should still do it. If you work hard enough and you steer through the bullshit enough, then you'll be able to navigate your way through anyways, despite their efforts to crush independent creators in favor of mainstream sources. You, you should be able to. It's complicated, but you can do it. Got one from Jesse D. Bernard. Would you advise anyone who may be liberal to talk to a conservative or vice versa in order in order for each other to get a better understanding of the ideologies? Yes, 100%. I believe in discussion. Always. Discussion is so important. If you're talking to an extremist, you are at the very least getting an idea of their belief system and 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 maybe you can empathize with them and humanize them. That we have such a problem with dehumanization right now in this in this country, in this world. People just don't view other people as humans. That is one of our biggest issues right now, I believe. So yes, talk to them. Figure out that they are just like you. They just have a different way of viewing things and figure out why they view it that way and find the flaws in it and point them out. Talk to them about it. That's how we make progress in my opinion. So yes. Um, I do want to touch on the super chats real quick. I've had a few. First was from Scarlet Stormbreaker, $2. Have more of my ramen noodle money. You didn't have to do that. I appreciate that, Scarlet Stormbreaker. Thank you. I got another from Abigail Diaz. Watchtower is totally the tower card of tarot. Keep up the good work, Telltale. Thank you, Abigail. That is awesome. I got one more super chat from somebody, Omega Riley, who happens to be my podcast moderator tonight. He says, I forgot to do this earlier, so here's five bucks. Thank you, Omega Riley. You are the shit. And I will reiterate, as I mentioned earlier in my video premiere earlier today, Omega Riley is my biggest fan. So thank you again, Omega Riley. The Nintendo Switch Pro is coming out pretty soon. And I found this article on the website imore.com. It was written by Rebecca Spear. And it's basically everything that you would want to know about the Switch Pro. Like, it's not really public yet, a lot of this information. So some of it is speculation, but this is what they know about it. There have been whisperings that Nintendo has been working on a more powerful version of the Switch. Nintendo hasn't confirmed the existence of such a console. However, they didn't confirm the existence of the Nintendo Switch Lite or the new Nintendo Switch model for a long time either. Fortunately, there's plenty of information out there to make us think that it is indeed coming. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me. The Nintendo Switch is kind of a weak console, especially like, look at its competitors, like the Xbox One and the PlayStation. I think we're up to PS4 right now, right? Now, they're a little bit older than the Switch, but they're kind of at the end of their lifespan, but they're still so much more powerful than the Switch. 
honestly, I think Nintendo did a phenomenal job with the Switch still. Like, the Switch is kind of a weak console or whatever, but the games on it, just phenomenal. And Nintendo learned one thing that it, it's taken decades for people to learn about designing games. You don't want to make them realistic. You don't want to make them realistic because they're going to look like garbage in 15 years. You want to stylize them. You want to make them cartoony so that they stand the test of time. Like, look at Wind Waker, Zelda Wind Waker. That was a cartoony game, and it stood the test of time. It was a, it was a, a really fantastic game. You'll notice Breath of the Wild, Zelda Breath of the Wild, that's a really kind of cartoony game, too. They didn't try to make it realistic. They didn't try to make a Hylian with pointy ears and everything look exactly like a human in any way. They stylized it. They, they made it kind of cartoony. And the Switch can handle those graphics. So Breath of the Wild is going to stand the test of time just like Wind Waker did. I, Nintendo knows how to make a franchise. They know how to make a franchise title. They are masters at it says, what is the Switch Pro? Way back in 2018, the Wall Street Journal released an article regarding future Nintendo Switch versions. The article stated that Nintendo is working on two new Switch devices. The internet has speculated that one of these devices could be a more powerful version of the Switch and dubbed it the Switch Pro. Since then, Nintendo's revealed the new Switch model and the Switch Lite. Given Nintendo's past practices, we still think the gaming company is planning on creating more Switch versions. If a Switch Pro is in the making, it would likely have a more powerful screen and potentially some upgraded performance abilities from the original Switch. This would make it primarily intended for hardcore gamers who are willing to spend more for an intense gaming experience. I don't know. I noticed like there was some frame dropping in Breath of the Wild, like when you go to the Korok Forest. When you go there, there are like a lot of leaves and trees around and there are like lots and lots of frame drops. It's really, really rough. Even on the TV, like e not even in, in like mobile mode. I'm talking on stationary mode. There's lots of frame dropping. It should not be like that. So the Switch is a little bit underpowered for some of its games, but whatever. It's a solid console with a so solid uh, game library. So one of the best game libraries for any of their systems in a while, I, I honestly think, so far. According to the Wall Street Journal, Sharp will be supplying IGZO display panels to Nintendo's new video game machines. The thing to note about these displays is that they will offer high resolution in a thin form without consuming a lot of energy. However, neither Nintendo nor Sharp specified which Switch models would be getting the IGZO screens. Possible that this could be meant for the fabled Switch Pro or another Switch model altogether. If it is for the Switch Pro, it wouldn't be surprising to see vastly improved resolution abilities using Sharp's technology. I don't know. I can't see how the Switch Pro could possibly be that much better than the traditional Switch unless they fixed those fucking Joy-Cons. That would be nice, but I mean, the Joy-Cons are such useless pieces of garbage. All right, that's all I've got for you guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>